Hi guys, welcome back. I'm Brianna. I'm Maharo. And I'm Demaya. And this is She Thinks She Knows Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Black Plight in Music, which is the first of a series that we hope to continue over the course of our podcast season. Today we're going to focus on the time period of from the, 19, the late 30s to the um, mid 70s, the 1900s. And we each have chosen one song from that era that we think, you know, details Black plight, Black struggle, and why we think it's important. Um, we're going to kind of break down those songs and get into talking about themes. I can go first since my song came first. So the song that I am choosing to highlight is actually a poem but it's sing by Billie Holiday. So a lot of you might know the song Strange Fruit. She sang it in 1939. I always heard this song, well, I heard the song sampled by by Kanye West and Jay-Z, the song Blood on the Leaves. Or is that that just Kanye or is that both of them? I think it's Kanye. Kanye. Yeah, it's Kanye, my bad. Yeah, so I heard him sample it, but I I don't know. I, I didn't really pay attention to samples too much. And I'm taking an Afro-Am class that talks about revolution within music um, this semester. And we focused on that song for a little bit. And to me, like the message or like just just everything behind the song it was worthy of being talked about. So that's why I chose it. If you don't know, the song Strange Fruit is about lynching in the 30s and 40s, you know, following slavery. And a Jewish man wrote it, which I think was pretty ironic because he was, he was basically um, against lynching. And I don't, it's not ironic that uh, a Jewish man was against lynching, but I just think it was ironic that she was able to perform it and gain notoriety based off of that. Because um, in our music class, we, we talked about the, um, the appropriation of like jazz music and blues music, uh, not really blues, but jazz music specifically by white people. And in this instance, it's kind of the reverse where um, a black woman is benefiting or, or she's gaining success off of something that was written by a non-black person. When I was doing some more in-depth research about the song, um, the way she performed it was actually revolutionary, I guess, just because black women were just not in control of the room when they were in it, especially amongst a variety, a number of white people. So um, when she first performed the song, obviously she was scared that there was gonna be retaliation because it's a gruesome, it's gruesome imagery that you think of when you hear the strange fruits and blood on the leaves and all this stuff, you could just really picture someone being lynched but when she first performed it she made all the waiters stop their service before the song started the room would be in complete darkness 
then there would only be a spotlight on her. And there would also be no encore. And then at the end of the song, the lights go off and she disappears. And so I think that that was just super powerful to read um, because although she was scared and although there was there was a lot of risk that was being taken, um, she did what she needed to do. To highlight um, some lyrics from the song, a piece from the first verse, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees, pastoral scene of the gallant south, the bulging eyes and the twisted mouth, set of magnolias sweet and fresh, then the smell, sudden smell of burning flesh. Like, whoa. Um, I think those lyrics just speak for themselves and, and they really do a great job of showing what was going on. So that just goes directly to that imagery point. I know you guys knew about this song before me. So what did you guys think about it? I think I was actually just going to ask you a question, but I think that it definitely is crazy. I first heard the song as a sample on um, the Kanye West song. What's it called? Blood on the Leaves. Blood on the Leaves, right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I first heard the song as a sample on that. And obviously Blood on the Leaves is like the kind of song that like kind of gets you like, like, cause he just gets so, and there's like, there's so much energy from the song. And it kind of seems, it, it's ironic how sinister the original meaning is and like that history is of lynching and I think that I was just gonna ask you like does knowing the original song and like kind of studying it um doing a little bit of research does that like dim down the effect or the impact of Kanye West's song on you or like how do you think that changes things like I feel like ever since I heard that listening to that song it's not the same kind of ignorance or like it just makes me, it really makes me think of the history and it kind of gets me like, you know, like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that, that thing of like, once you know, like you can't forget because I used to be like bobbing my head, like going, going kind of crazy when the song, <laughs> when his song comes on, cause it just makes you want to do that. But like thinking about it, I just don't, I guess you could say that he was uh like, he was showing revolution within him using that song, but it's just a little weird to me still. <laughs> it's like, was the meaning lost or was that intentional? Like, honestly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I don't know if I could just listen to the song uh, the same way anymore either. Yeah. So yeah, I discovered the song through Kanye West as well. And at that time, I wasn't ever looking into... I didn't think of songs of like, what what does the background instrumentals really mean and how does that play into the song? And then when I heard Strange Fruit, I was just disturbed because I'm like, oh, like I'm listening to Kanye West bumping this song. Like, oh, this song is so good. And then I hear the original and I'm like, what is this? Like, it kind of just, it made me question like, how, why would he make such a like dreadful song into something so like upbeat? But I guess you could look at it as like turning a, bad situation you know like something so negative into like repurposing it for it to be something that's very positive I guess in a sense 
Um, so that was originally my take. And I honestly was just disturbed that like how Kanye was able to change the song so much to the point where like, I wouldn't even question what the instrumental, like the sample was. But I also think that finding out that that was a sample made me more conscious about samples that people use in their songs. I would, every time I would listen to a song, I would think like, oh, is this a sample too? Like, are these samples? Like I try to pick them out more to try to see if people were doing that. Yeah, so that was honestly my only take on it. But I also know that like this song was re like performed by, wasn't it re-performed by um, Nina Simone also? Mm-hmm. And so I just thought it was interesting because I think, I think what happened in the past with music, which I don't think happens a lot now, outside of covers was that people would re like sing the same songs and it would sound different from each person but now it's kind of like you know it's a cover but like when I looked up Strange Fruit and I seen that it was from two people I'm like well what's the original you know like I would have to I had to dig more to find out that it was actually Billie Holiday who sang it um so but I thought it was interesting that in the past that's what people used to do like they could re-record the same song and still be well known for it. It's interesting how you brought up Nina Simone because that's actually the artist of the song I chose. And this is jumping ahead of time to 1967 when she released Backlash Blues, which is actually a song that was written by Langston Hughes, who was a famous poet, part of the Harlem Renaissance. And he was actually her friend, which was interesting to learn. And in this song, um, Nina directly speaks to and like addresses this invisible imaginary person, Mr. Backlash. And he represents kind of white America and like the oppressor, somebody and in the song, he's characterized as somebody who always has backlash to what the Nina or like the voice of the song is trying to do. And so she says things like, you raise my taxes, freeze my wages, send my son to Vietnam. You give me second class houses and second class schools. And these are all things, these are illusions, all things that like white America has done to colored or black people in the US. And when she talks about second class houses and second class schools, that's kind of like an allusion to segregation. And then she talks about like the draft of black soldiers to Vietnam basically. And overall just like institutional racism that is ongoing or was ongoing, um, still is ongoing. I focused a lot on the lyrics because there's really not a lot of lyrics, but I think each lyric or each set of lyrics is significant. She tells him, Mr. Backlash, that the world is big and bright and round and full of people like me, which I kind of interpreted as saying, the world is not just white, despite, you know, white people, maybe the dominant race in this country, but the world, no matter what happens, dark people or black people, colored people will exist. And at the end of the song, she gives like a warning to Mr. Backlash. She said, I'm gonna leave you with the Backlash Blues you're the one who will have the blues, not me, just wait and see. And I thought that was really interesting too. And I think it kind of characterizes Nina Simone herself because when you like look her up or people who knew her talk about her, they say how strong she was, how strong-willed and determined and she wasn't afraid to stand up for you know what was right. So I thought it was really interesting. And another thing that I found, it's from this article um, from a Jazz FM 91 article by Emily Bunnell, and the article's titled How Nina Simone Used Protest Music to Challenge Racial Discrimination. And the fact is that this song is intentionally a 12-bar blues piece. It was chosen to be a 12-bar piece because she wanted to, I guess, 12 bars 
is like unity between the bars. And she wanted to invoke the idea of unity for the black community, which honestly is interesting to me because I know nothing about music, but it was just interesting the level of detail that was put into making the song. I thought that was very interesting. And overall, this song, listening to it, because I don't really listen to a lot of Nina Simone. I know a couple of her songs that I really like. And listening to this song, it was good. Like, I liked it. I think I wouldn't have thought about it much on a first listen without having to analyze it for, you know, this episode. But I think that out of all her songs, I think it speaks the most directly about Black play. What I also thought was interesting was that kind of like how Demaya just talked about Strange Fruit. It represents Black plight in a different way. And so how Strange Fruit was about lynching, this is literally about the different things of institutional racism kind of ties directly back to the oppressor and it addresses him or it in an interesting way. So I thought it was interesting. What do you guys think? I mean, I don't think you guys, you guys haven't heard this song, right? Because honestly, I hadn't heard this song until a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, no, I listened I to it when you sent it um, to us. But what I thought was interesting about the song, honestly, all the songs during this time period is they were really direct and they were more bold, I feel like, because they spoke directly to the, like the audience was clear who they were talking to and the message was clear for who they were giving it to. Even though the, um, how it, like the sound of the song was very, you had to focus on what she was saying because it was paced really well. It wasn't like a fast, oh, it's catchy or anything. It was straight, like, this is what I'm telling you. Every line is something else. And there's really no room, there's no room to breathe really. And just be like, all right, that part's over. Let me wait. You know, it was just straight to the point. And so I think I liked when I heard it, it seems it went by so fast, even though the song was very, even though it was sung at a decent pace, it just went by kind of fast because there was no stopping point. It was just like, I'm going to give you everything. This is what you did to me. This is what you did to me. This is what I'm going to do back. And I think the ending of the song by saying like how you were um, mentioning her statement about how she's going to like, she's going to leave them with the backlash blue. I feel like it was just an, it was um, like a really bold threat considering the time period that they were in. And so it, I think it made the song have a lot more value because the risk that they were taking actually making it. And that could be said for both of the songs, really. Just the risk that's going behind making the songs gives it value as opposed to, you know, comparing it to, I don't want to compare it so much to nowadays music because that's such a, like a huge time difference. But I just think the, the music was used for a lot more back then than I feel like it was like now. But that's my own personal opinion. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that that's what gives me, I guess, for lack of better words, the chills um, when I hear these background stories or, or even when I see the performances, because to be on a stage performing like these songs, your audience, most like a lot of times your audience does not look like you. They don't look like you and you are literally risking your life. Like, I think that today, eh, some people, they could say they're risking their life, but it doesn't have the same ring to it, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I, I think that that is what is so admirable, I guess, about both these songs um, and Nina Simone in general, because they were literally the unpopular opinion. And they were unapologetic about that. And, and like just connecting it to my life, that's how I like living. So 
that's why I admire it so much. So the song that I uh, chose for this topic was Get Up, Stand Up by Bob Marley and the Wailers. And this song was made in 1973. Um, background about this song. What I found that was kind of interesting is that it was co-produced with uh, a British man named Christopher Blackwell. And he was actually the founder for Island Records. And doing a little bit of research about him, he was known for being the man who put people on to reggae music, which I think is interesting because he's a, he's a British white man. So it kind of like plays into how Demaya was talking about, um, like with the Jewish writer, the Jewish poet for the song Strange Fruit. I just thought it was also interesting how, um, how this man was really seen as uh, a mogul for putting people onto culture music, especially like reggae. But yeah, um, Bob Marley and the Wailers and Peter Tosh, they were all reggae artists and they put the song together because it was like a response to different things relating to like poverty and um, also issues happening in South Africa at the time. I'm pretty sure it was like the apartheid that was happening in South Africa during that time period. And so they performed the song as really like a message for people to not think that there was victory in death or that they would be saved through death. And I thought it was kind of an interesting take because the song really became like an international anthem. When I heard the song, it just felt like, you know, good, upbeat music like you know nice Caribbean barbecue music I didn't really think so heavily about the message behind it but the the chorus of the song or really the biggest part of the song is literally saying get up stand up stand up for your rights so um I just thought it was interesting overall the song really spoke to just resistance to oppression and I think what was cool about it was that even though it was a reggae song it like anyone could really relate to it so Peter Tosh also re-recorded the song in 1977 in his album called Equal Rights. And he was also, he was known for being really vocal about speaking on those issues and demanding, you know, revolutions. And he was like, he has a, he had a bold presence in terms of what his music was and it was very direct. So some of the lyrics that stood out in that song is that he says like, most people think great God will come from the sky, take away everything and make everybody feel high. And then he follows it by saying, but if you know what life is worth, you would look for yours on earth. And now you see the light, so stand up for your right. So it was really telling people, you know, like that whole thing, like God will save us. And, you know, in the end, God, God will fix everything was sort of like, he, he didn't want people to use that as an excuse to not demand what was, you know, not demand what they should have while they're alive. And he wanted people to see the value in life. And so I think that it was a really cool message while also making a song very catchy because with all of the, like comparing it to both of your songs, those songs are very, I don't want to say dreadful because they were kind of more, more works of art as, as, a, um, as opposed to this song being like, I don't know, like an anthem, you know, like Strange Fruit was, it was a poem and so was um, the Blacklash Blues. But this song was just, they just collaborated, put it together and decided like, this is going to be something that will get the people going, hopefully. So I just thought it was interesting. It was a good compare like an interesting contrast, but that also put out a similar message. I just thought of a question that you can answer, either one of you can answer, because it relates to both of your songs, but I just thought about it when Brianna talked about how it was 
did you say it was co-produced by a British man or a white man? Yeah. And so, and with the theme, like get up, stand up for your rights. Do you guys think that, and with what Demai was saying about how Billie Holiday, like most artists, black artists were performing in white crowds. And at the end of the day, they seem to be a hit with those crowds. But it's like with the message being so distinct and like significant, like there's no other way you can take it. Do you guys think that over the course of like music's history, do you think when a white audience is into the music or when it's commercialized or when it's popularized, do you think that kind of takes away the significance of it as a piece of like art or like the significance of what the artist is trying to say? Or do you guys just think that music can only inspire so much and only go so far? I think the message does get lost. I think that because um, just capitalism in general and its evolution, even from um, the 30 or like 40 um, year time period of the songs that we're talking about, the evolution of capitalism was like so drastic. And I think that you can always see that in music. You can see that white people have always been looking to black people for entertainment and for consumption. And I think that with all three of these songs that directly shows up because these people, they, and it's still today, honestly, black artists time and time again, even, even uh, musicians, they get up in front of these white crowds and they're like, I guess idolized or like, they're looked at as like, oh my gosh, like the talent, like they have so much talent. And when you have a crowd of people coming to see you just for the talent, of course the, the message is going to get lost because they're not here for anything but to be entertained. And I think it's really sad, but that's just the music industry in general. And like, we have to remember who controls it and who, who gets to say, who is allowed to say what and to do what. And so I think 100%, uh, what do you guys think? I feel like the way that I would interpret it at the time, you know, white people had the influence, they had the power to make things reach a better audience and they had the power for it to, you know, stay stagnant. And so I think in this case, for example, with Christopher Blackwell being known as someone who put reggae music into the world and introduce people to Bob Marley and things like that. I feel like it worked. It's an advantage in a sense, because that message wouldn't have been able to get put out if there wasn't an Island records. And so that's often, I, not to say it wouldn't, wouldn't have been put out, but you know, the way, the way that it's popularized now, you know, that was, that happened because they were able to be produced by a record label and the song, you know, became a hit and to, I wouldn't be able to speak on whether the song would still be as popular if it wasn't, if it didn't go about it in that way. But I just think that sometimes with the influence of white people, you know, black people are able to use that influence to reach more people in general. But I do feel like the value of the song kind of gets tampered with because we don't know what happens in the process of making it, you know, like there, that opinion is still being put in because they're being they're producing it so at the end of the day it is their say so whether the you know whether the you know white person or whoever decided 
to give them full creative freedom with the song and just said, whatever you make, I'm going to post it. Like, I'm going to play it and I'm going to sell it and I'm going to promote it. We wouldn't know that, but I just feel like seeing, like comparing my song to you guys, like my song was very chorus heavy. And the chorus, while it was a message, it was just get up, you know, like it was just very repetitive. And that way you could easily forget about the lyrics in between. You can just be like, yeah, get up, stand up. And at that point, it's just sort of like a fine tune as opposed to mm-hmm. like Maharo's song, there is no chorus. You know, it literally is just saying, this is what you've done. You know, it's just more of a concrete, you know, it's not concrete, concise message as opposed to mine that could easily become just a jingle. So I think that depending on the intentions of the writers or the people producing, if they have the intent of making people acknowledge the social issues going on versus whether they're just looking to make money, I think that could that determines whether a song loses its value or not. Yeah. That makes sense. And going off of that, both of what you guys just said, like you really can't separate or like ignore the fact that in reality, black and white, like, you know, black and white people in this country were like, you can't just separate the two, like music that's happening. There's white people and there's black people involved. So like, you can't separate the two and act like, you know, cause it really was all connected. And whether we know the intentions, like the reality, like you just said, is that the song was able to become popular because of this, because it was attached to this um, record. And I think going back to like how Jamai was talking about like capitalism and how like music is commercialized and music is like about money. Now, um, I think that there's only so much that we can take. Like I was asking in the beginning, I think there's only so much we can take as people in terms of like liberation or civil rights. Like there's only so much we can take from music because at the end of the day, it's not like, it's not made nowadays and even back then it wasn't made initially for let's get this message out it was you know it's profitable and so I definitely think that it's like recognizing the art or like the lyrics that are in the music and taking that as part of your message but not putting the responsibility on artists which is something that honestly connects with today but like putting all this responsibility on music or the people who are making the music when in reality you can't expect them to contribute yeah, I think that um, just to directly to Maharo's point, I just think that today it's much harder to be an activist and an entertainer. Um, we 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 see it like starting to happen, I guess, or or entertainers trying to do such thing. Um, but at the end of the day, like they're getting paid a lot of money. And I think a lot of them would rather uh, keep their money and keep their things rather than put their full life on the line. And when I mean life, I mean just like everything, you know, uh, your livelihood, the, the, the endorsements, everything, everything that comes with um, being an entertainer. I think that there's so much to lose these days. I know Brianna had thought about using Sam Cooke to highlight um but like even him he he rolls with Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X like you would not like I, first of all activism is so differently these days but I just think that that is just so I, I would I would love to see something like that happen today where you have um and then two entertainers 
and one, I guess, scholar leader, uh, really all with the same message and, and willing to put in the same amount of work and lose everything the same in the same way. Um, I just think that today that that's really difficult to ask entertainers to do. And it's, it's pretty sad, but it's just the reality of things. Going towards that point, I think now we're starting to see more of, there's like a clear enemy, but for a long time, that wasn't the case. You know, it was just trying to focus on what's popular, what's mainstream. It, the focus wasn't, we need to fight for our people. But back then, that's what their everyday life was. Slavery, things like that, segregation, they were all fresh. So that's what people were able to express. Those leaders were prevalent. And everyone was willing to do whatever they could to demand a better life for themselves. That's what I believe. I just think now that we've gone, we've come, you know, there's been such a huge time or a gap between those kinds of times and now someone coming out trying to speak on, you know, capitalism and things like, you know, like it would be like a rap song or something and it could easily get lost because people aren't really able to relate to it directly as they were back then, if that makes any sense. I just think that the relation between the songs and the times were much closer back then versus now. Now what's being really mainstream is like sneakers, you know, pop and fun stuff, happiness, positive. Yeah, like aesthetics. So that's what people are going to profit off of. So that's why they make that music. Um, yeah, so I just think that that's probably one of the biggest reasons why nowadays people aren't going to be willing to risk everything because they're not going to see the reason for it. You know, there's there's a difference now between activists and people who make music. People who are activists, they're willing to do all of that heavy lifting, all that stuff. People who are make music are just here to create a unity in a, in a light way, not in such a heavy, guys, we need to buckle down, get to the root of the problem, fight. They're not trying to give that message out because they don't, there's not that, that tension isn't really there. And I think currently 2020 and 2021, it's starting to come back and maybe there'll be a shift again. But prior to that, I don't, I didn't see it. So I think that was a good point you made at the end, Brianna, about now versus then. Um, if anybody wants to have any takeaways from like our discussion, I feel like I learned a lot from you guys going into your songs and hopefully you learned something from mine too. I have a couple takeaways. Does anybody want to start with the takeaways? You can go. Okay. Um, one of my takeaways is that I think that when we talk about samples, I think like music is just timeless or good music is timeless, in my opinion. Um, I think that's why artists nowadays or of this era are able to make samples. And that's why samples are so popular even today from like 40, 50, 60 years from when the song was first released because mm -hmm. good music is timeless and the message like transcends. And it might be diluted by author, I mean, artists nowadays intentions, but it still transcends or like it speaks to them at least. So they want to put it in their music. And I also think that in general, like black, the black struggle, um, the struggle of black people everywhere or specifically in America, but everywhere as well is ongoing. But music that talks about black plight isn't just a trauma song. Like it's not just like a struggle song. I think it's also, it also brings up history and it brings up like culture and it 
informed a generation in a positive way and not just negative. So I think like while Black struggle is ongoing, like Black music also represents both sides, Black joy and Black struggle. So I think that's important to keep in mind. I, I really like that point that you just made. Um, I think that because music in general and cultures, music or Black culture specifically, music has such a significant place. I think that uh, it was really important for you to say that because yes, you can talk about a struggle, but you're telling the story. You're Like you said, you're informing another generation of what was happening. And I think that that is one, of, especially in today's day and age where genuine um, facts or, or firsthand accounts of, of Black struggles or just Black experience is hard to come by. I think music is the, the easiest way for any Black person to access those experiences. So in terms of takeaways or not really a takeaway, but it's a reassurance for me at least, especially hearing um, you guys give your take on the songs that you chose. Now, I, I just know why I'd rather prefer older music over today's pop hits that are coming out because yes, like I can dance to it or yes, I can sing to it or, or do a TikTok to it, but mm -hmm. I enjoy the story behind things. And I think that um, when you hear a song that has a story, you're more willing to seek the information out about history. You're more willing to want to understand um, why, why, why was this artist saying this and how important it was for them to do it. So that's my takeaway. I think something that I took away from this conversation is that circumstances could really shape music and it does shape music. And I think that comparing sort of the kinds of music that was made then and how I feel like I'm seeing more of it now in certain artists makes me a little more hopeful about how messages are being relayed in the black community again. I think that these songs are really a great, great examples to how Black people are able to unite and able to communicate, if not directly, like, you know, so I just hope that this is something that becomes widespread or popularized again, because it's just great to see that that's, that used to be a thing, you know. Something else that I think I took away from this is to pay attention, to pay more attention to old music and the sound quality, you know, the sound quality, how it came about, the stories behind it, how they were developed. I think those are more in this, it's more interesting learning about the background of a, of a song than what the song itself is saying, because getting that little history, I feel like creates a better appreciation for the song in itself. So I definitely want to do that more and take more time going into old music and appreciating it for how it came about as more so than what it's saying just in general you know what I mean those are I think those are the two things that I took away my kids are gonna be some <laughs> they're gonna <laughs> be some 1900 listening <laughs> 19
1800s music listening kid because <laughs> I just can't imagine like what else there is to come. Like obviously you let people listen to what's what's around, but for some substance, we're gonna have to rewind the time. <laughs> I, I just yeah, but I feel like there's certain. I think that there may be people who put out more meaningful music. I feel like there. I feel like there will be. That's just my personal opinion, but considering how life has been working and how, well, I've just been discovering a lot of music in general. So maybe that's where it's coming from, but I definitely feel like there are still people who want to make quality music about life and, and take a lot of thought and putting a message out. It may not be mainstream, but I feel like it still exists. And so I hope that those things become popular again. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of this episode. I'm honestly very grateful and happy that we did this. I think this discussion, although shorter than other episodes we might have, was really good. It was filled with a lot of like substance. And I think that I definitely had like more takeaways than I even said. I think it kind of sparked, I don't know, more interest in me to listen to older music and actually start really analyzing lyrics and things when I listen to music that's not clear or that's not of my time period. Um, so yeah, I'm actually happy we got together and did this. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Um, we hope to continue this series, like, we, like I said in the beginning. We hope to add um, more eras, maybe more contemporary music and discussing that, but we will keep you posted and stay tuned for our future content. Thank you again and goodbye. Bye. Bye.